Hello and welcome to The Stushy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip and on this episode I am joined by Justin Bowie and Adele Merson to look at the latest in Scottish politics and how the decisions in Parliament affect you. This week the action seemed to come straight to us. We'll bring you some interviews with fishing industry leaders who are trying to peel off SNP politicians to erode majority support for special restricted zones known as highly protected marine areas. We also caught up with the growing number of people demanding an inquiry into a disgraced surgeon who operated out of Dundee, NHS Tayside, called Professor Sam Elgemel, who will be familiar to long-term listeners. We'll chat about the two unavoidably big stories dominating everything else here, Boris Johnson's petulant exit stage right from Parliament, and the SNP's latest troubles and opportunities following Nicola Sturgeon's arrest and release in connection with police probe in finances. Let's start with Boris Johnson, though. Is anyone here sad to see him go? I don't think anyone will be sad to see him go. No, his statement after the findings just kind of it felt like he was digging down. He's sort of refusing to admit complicity. But we all saw what happened at yeah. the time. We we know these parties happened. We know that he misled Parliament, and I, I thought it was you know remarkable how strong those findings were, how unanimous they seemed as well. And yeah, it just feels like a very kind of um, pathetic exit for someone who. Um, I think, other than a small band of people who remain loyal to him for some unknown reason, I think most people would just be glad to see the back of him. Yeah. I mean, the the report was out first, obviously, when it set the scene a little. The Privileges Committee branded Boris Johnson the first Prime Minister to have lied to the Commons. Cross-party panel said it would have recommended a 90-day suspension from the House of Commons if he'd not resigned. He'd likely get a recall petition and thrown out in his ear at a by-election anyway. There'll be a vote on this on June the 19th, which is the same day as Boris Johnson's birthday. It's all a bit academic though now, Adele. I mean, do you, I mean, he's gone. So is this just all over bar the shouting? He's just, he's that's the coward's exit perhaps? It definitely isn't a very dignified exit. It doesn't really feel like he's left with any, you know, level of humility or real genuine apology or anything. Um, I guess the, the vote on Monday will be interesting just in terms of seeing how many supporters he has actually got and, and what they may say. Um, yeah. I believe it's a free vote, so it's up to each individual how they vote. Um, I see the SNP has also just challenged Douglas Ross to kind of whip his Scottish MPs to, to vote for the sanctions. So that will be popcorn at the ready, I think, on, on Monday. But yeah, it's that kind of debate, isn't it, whether most people seem to say, you know, Boris Johnson is surely finished now, but you get all the usual, often journalists saying we've kind of been proved wrong before and you just don't know. I mean, I guess what might be holding him back is that in order to come back as an MP, he would really have to have the party on board to let him stand. And it's hard to imagine that happening. But, you know, polls show that he's really not popular. So I don't know if they would be inclined to do that. But as we've seen in politics, things can change quite rapidly. So... I guess never say never. Someone like Boris Johnson, though, it's like that thing, though, you, you, you touched on something that seems to be, it operates in a different environment when politics is involved. Like, he's he's not popular, polls have shown he's not popular, but he has the confidence of someone who has literally never been able to hear a critical word about, I guess, he just does not agree with any criticism ever levelled his way. He is, he believes he's untouchable. So it's almost, 
pointless trying to work out if there's anything that could hold him back because he'll just do what he wants anyway. We um, spoke to Douglas Ross in Parliament yesterday. So it's interesting that people are trying to kind of goad him into saying something strong about his own group because we tried that ourselves in front of him uh, yesterday. He was desperately dancing around the hard questions on Boris and whether or not he was a fit and proper person to ever stand again. I heard him get asked multiple times if Boris Johnson could have any route back to Parliament. He wouldn't answer it directly. Uh, a fellow reporter at the Herald asked, for example, if he'd be embarrassed should Scottish Secretary Alistair Jack, who of course was a Boris loyalist in the past, fail to, to back the Privilege Committee findings. And he just kind of smiled and moved on at that one. So we'll have to careful eyes on who votes which way on Monday. Does this pass by or do any damage to the Tories under Rishi Sunak? Justin, what do you reckon? Is he is he tarnished by association or is that okay for him? I think there's questions to be asked of Rishi Sunak in the sense that, you know, he, he was Boris Johnson's, he wasn't necessarily the deputy, but, you know, he seemed to be seen as a number two in many ways. He was the chancellor. He backed Boris Johnson for a long time. You know, he didn't step down until about the summer last year. The Partygate allegations came out around December. Let's not forget Rishi Sunak himself was also fined as well. So he, he's not necessarily completely clear of this. But I think the fact we've got a bit of a sort of feud now between Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak and, you know, you've obviously had Liz Trust between the two of them as well as Prime Minister. Who could forget that? It maybe gives a sense of Surak perhaps has managed to distance himself a bit from Boris Johnson. There's still some senior figures in his cabinet who were in Boris Johnson's cabinet. You know, Alistair Jack, I suppose, being, being a prime example. But if you look at the top of government, you've got somebody like, you know, Jeremy Hunt as Chancellor now. He wasn't in Boris Johnson's top team at all. So... There is a sense of a bit of distance there, and I think Rishi Sunak's managed to get away with that. But when you look at the polling, you know, Labour are still out in front at UK-wide polling. All, all suggestions are that they're going to win the next election. So while Sunak may not suffer any immediate consequences, you could argue that the wider consequences from Partygate and, you know, Liz Truss, which, you know, keep coming after that, have still had that impact. And if Rishi Sunak ends up out of power, it's, you know, the whole Partygate scandal and the actions of Boris Johnson will have certainly played a part in that. Yeah. This by-election in his patch is going to make it, it's going to become like a referendum on local issues again, like the ultra-low emission zone, which is basically kryptonite for uh, some Conservatives by the looks of it. But it's it's not all about Boris, regardless of whether he's in Parliament or not. We've got our own stuff going on here as well. Um, of course, it's almost been a full week now since Nicola Sturgeon was arrested on Sunday. Uh, as part of a Operation Branch form linked to a complaint about SNP finances, she was released without charge after being questioned for a few hours. She wasn't in Parliament that I saw this week, though, um, which left Hamza Yousaf, the First Minister, to speak to reporters, particularly on Thursday after uh, and Tuesday after an SNP group meeting. Correct me if I'm wrong, Adele. I don't know, but the impact of this arrest it didn't it didn't feel like it had the same heft as the first two. Peter Murrell, the chief executive, of course, well, former chief executive, was the first to be arrested and then released without charge. Then the former treasurer, Colin Beattie, arrested and released without charge. Everyone knew that Nicola Sturgeon was next in line to be to be questioned and it, it, it came and went. Do you think that um, this has had a particular impact on the SNP this week or it's just something that we've expected and we can see how it pans out? I think you're right in that with Peter Murrell, I guess it was the shock because that was the, the first the first arrest and it was all very new then whereas there was a lot of people speculating that this was going to happen to Nicola Sturgeon at some point I mean it is still 
obviously, and it did dominate the headlines because it's the former leader of the country. Um, but yeah, I would I would agree with your assessment there. Um, in terms of what this means for the SNP, I mean, he's not exactly been dealt, you know, good cards here. He's he, it's really up yeah. against him at the moment. I mean, he I get the impression he's keen to pivot away from from this as, as he would be and actually start speaking about governing and what he's doing but he just keeps kind of getting pulled back into this and then there's obviously quite a lot of um, reports off the back of the SNP's meeting group meeting that they had um, in parliament this week and kind of differing assessments of what was said and in that obviously Hamza Youssef seems to be saying that that he understands that MSPs you know, have their own views on this, whereas there were kind of conflicting reports suggesting that he's calling for unity and he doesn't want people to kind of air their dirty laundry in public because he thinks it just gives the opposition their kind of attack lines and does their job for them. So I think it undoubtedly is it's it's hampering his ability to kind of have his own path, I think, because ultimately he was the kind of favoured candidate of Nicola Sturgeon. I think that's fair to say. And therefore, I guess he owes her quite a lot as well. So he's definitely in a strange position right now where he must find it hard. Mm. Yeah, and there's obviously more coming this week. Um, the days ahead, we're expecting another independence paper um, from the the series that Nicola Sturgeon began when she was in office. They were put on pause. Some will be pleased with that in the SNP. It shows that he's got independence on the mind, which is clearly a big problem internally but others uh, particularly while Labour are supposed to be in town as well Keir Starmer's expected up in Scotland they're going to be talking about big issues energy all that kind of stuff coming down the line with an eye on taking over government that will be an interesting dimension if the SNP are talking about independence while Labour are talking about governing and we'll go round and round and round again uh, and if you're interested in more meanwhile look out for stories coming out on Sunday uh, more on the SNP mood within the camp and Hamza Yousaf should be writing for us as well. So something to look out for there. I am so knackered. If it is not the SNP finance scandal, it's dueling the A9. That's politics for you. Yes, sometimes I just want to switch off and transport myself somewhere completely different. Have you ever listened to True Crime Podcast, Sandy? I find they're a great way to relax whilst also keeping you entertained. I have, but most of them are American or they're based in England and I was looking for something a bit closer to home. Really envisage the scene at hand. What if I told you about a podcast that tells the story of a massive cocaine smuggling operation involving a former North Sea oil diver who grew up in Blair Gowrie and the Highlands. He made a deal with the Cali cartel to import £100 million of uncut cocaine into Scotland via a Liverpool. That does sound good. Hunting Mr X is DC Thompson's first true crime podcast that reveals the unbelievable story behind Julian Chisholm, who also became known as Mr X. It's got a prison break, an assassination plot, undercover surveillance, the lot. And where can I listen to this? Hunting Mr X is available on all your major podcasting platforms, from Spotify to Apple. Subscribe now. There are a couple of big stories on our doorstep here as well at Parliament this week, which will be familiar to some listeners. We've talked about this one before. It's the long scandal of how a surgeon called Sam Eljamel was able to operate at NHS Tayside while apparently causing harm. We've spoken to people who say they suffered under his knife. And Justin, you caught up with them again in Edinburgh this week. It's also in the news again today. 
the BBC with a great piece on a whistleblower claiming the health board must have known of concerns longer than they admit to publicly. What is the latest here, Justin, please? Yeah, so campaigners on Wednesday wore hospital gowns splattered with blood, um, and it was a, quite a powerful statement from them um, as they kind of campaigned outside Holyrood for a public inquiry. Victims of the rogue doctor who botched lots of operations uh, during his time at NHS Tayside have long said a full public inquiry is needed. They argue that, you know, sort of one-on-one reviews or sort of, you know, looking at a bit of casework isn't going to cut it. They need a review because it's not just about LGML. It's about what NHS Tayside knew and who essentially either covered this up or, you know, didn't do their due diligence. Um, so we've now seen today, the BBC have reported um, from three whistleblowers who essentially alleged that NHS Tayside were aware of his malpractice from 2009 he was suspended in 2013, which is when they say they were first aware. So, you know, this has added another dimension to this. Um, the health board are now going to be under a lot more pressure as well. Campaigners and some politicians say that this puts the case for a public inquiry beyond doubt. Interestingly, the Scottish government and their reaction to this, you know, typically they've sidestepped demands for an inquiry. They've argued that it's, it's you know, it's, it's not for them to do that. That's for NHS side to answer any further questions. Michael Matheson, since he became health secretary, has promised sort of a review of sorts, but again, it's not what they want. Interestingly, in their statement today, the government have said they're now considering next steps, and that sort of includes looking at uh, independent inquiry. Now, we're still a long way off any public inquiry, but I think it's interesting that we've seen a sort of clear evolution of the government's stance on this. Okay, well, let's listen back to your chat with one of the campaigners this week. Um, You've set the scene a little bit there. There were... It was all very theatrical, wasn't it? The gowns was, were made up to look like they were covered in blood and there was a good few of them outside Parliament. Who, who are you speaking to? So I spoke to Jules Rose outside Parliament. She has been a very strong campaigner um, for trying to bring uh, LGML to justice. Uh, listeners may remember she appeared on this issue before and she was absolutely scathing in her appraisal of Hamza Yousaf and NHS Tayside. She was, you know, strongly advocating for an inquiry again, insisting that they're not going to go away. Uh, her demands for an inquiry have obviously continued today. Um, she is going even stronger on that. I also spoke to a woman from Glen Rothis named Teresa Mallet, who only really came forward recently. She'd been operated on years ago, and as has been the case with a lot of patients, didn't really, you know, realised there were problems, hadn't really trusted the LGML at the time, but didn't really realise the scope of this until recently and then realised, wait, there are you know, dozens of out, us out there. I mean, I say dozens. Um, on Wednesday when they were campaigning outside Holyrood and protesting, there was a total of 99 patients. Since then, more who claim to have been harmed by LGML have come forward, which takes us up to 103 now. And you know, dozens upon dozens of them all support a public inquiry as well. Hmm. Okay, well, let's um, catch up now and have a, a listen to, to your conversation outside Parliament. We're back here again to continue to make our strong protest that we are not going away and we are now up to 99 patients that have been harmed by Professor El Jamel. But Tayside, I must add, have allowed Professor El Jamel to do that. And my concern is that Michael Matheson has lost control and it's NHS Tayside that are calling the shots here. It's a bit like the tail wagging the dog. Now, um, NHS Tayside continue to delay, prevaricate and answer to deadlines that are given to them. They fail to meet the deadlines. Now, that's with my own situation. 
My situation, I've been waiting over 13 months now to receive the care and support that was um, agreed in my independent report commissioned by the Scottish Government, I must add, and I've still not received any of that, myself and another patient. So how on earth can Michael Matheson expect to think that he's going to commission a one-to-one -one review on 97 other patients and I'm absolutely um, disgusted that Michael Matheson thinks that it's his call that he seems to believe that it's his right to feel that patients want a one-to-one. -one. Has he spoke to any of these patients? Because I tell you what, I have spoke to all these patients and all these patients here today that represent the 99 love hearts have told me, we Jules, we don't want a one-to-one -one independent review. We want a public inquiry. And the difference is, and Michael Matheson is hoping that we can sweep this under the carpet, the difference being is that a public inquiry will put all these specialists and medical professionals under oath. They will have no option but to give the right truth and answers. Yes, so a public inquiry under oath so that we can establish a repeated pattern of behaviour. We're not going to get that in a one-to-one -one independent review. And I think that's what Michael Matheson, that's his tactic. And that's not going to happen. It's a public inquiry. Why did NHS Tayside allow Professor Eljamel to butcher patients for 18 years going unnoticed and unchecked? In my independent review, it establishes that there has been a lack of clinical governance and severe management failures. So there is obviously there has been failures from NHS Tayside and we need to get the answers why. This is not just about Professor Elgenel. This is about a healthcare system that has failed to date 99 patients who are severely harmed, severely disabled, have had their lives ruined. Not just them, but with their families and loved ones also. Okay, well, there's a lot to go on there, Justin. I mean, that's one campaigner we've spoken to before, and if anyone wants to, to listen back to that, you can find that if you just go and look back through our episodes. You'll see a feature-length interview with, with Jules there. The day after that, another familiar protest came knocking at Parliament's door. This time it's all about the proposals to ban fishing in a feral chunk of Scottish waters. Adele, this has been one under your microscope before. Let's bring everyone back up to speed. What is a highly protected marine area? Who's for it and who's against it? A highly protected marine areas are basically designated areas of the sea that are strictly protected. Um, those who are behind them think that they allow the marine ecosystem to recover and thrive. And in some cases, there's been arguments made that they therefore will eventually lead to more species of fish because you've given the sea time to recover. The Scottish Government has committed to introduce HPMAs over at least 10% of Scotland's seas by 2026. That is a consequence of the power sharing deal between the SNP and the Greens, known as the Butte House Agreement. And basically, these zones would, broadly speaking, ban commercial and recreational fishing, I think they would also place sort of limits on infrastructure construction in those areas as well. They'd be met with a massive, really large backlash by seafood and, and, and fishing communities who, I think some of the seafood uh, leaders, they went down to Parliament this week to deliver a petition basically asking the Scottish government to think again on this proposal and, and scrap it. Yeah, it has been politically quite difficult for a number of reasons. Of course, the SNP are quite well represented around the coast. This has been a, 
a tricky one um, where you've got that age-old problem for a local constituency MSP. Your your local voters are absolutely furious, but your party is um, pushing for something that they think is in the national interest. Who who's who's wavering? Who's who's against it? Do we have a bit of a running tally? I think it's not very many that have come out against it from the party of government yet. No, there was there was a week a few, a few weeks back. There was quite a few in the one week debates about about this topic, and what came from that was Western Isles MSP Alistair Allen. He voted against the government's uh, position. Mm-hmm. It, he it wasn't a vote on the actual scheme. Just to make that clear, it was more more of a symbolic thing, I guess. Yeah, nailing your colours to the mast a little bit. Yeah, uh, so he was against it. Quite obviously, the Western Isles is one of the areas that's potentially most impacted by this because you know very very island Mm -hmm. communities coastal communities galore there and then we had fergus ewan has been very outspoken about about this along with a raft of other smp policies (laughs) yeah and we've had kate forbes also similar with alistair allen voted against the government's position in that debate and has been she has kind of softened her position a bit. Um, when she was running to be leader, she kind of came out with a big, this should be scrapped. And now she seems, she's definitely, you know, speaking up for fishermen, but it seems a little bit less strident than before, maybe. And then we've got Bampshire and Buckin Coast MSP, Karen Adam, who's sort of in a tricky, that position that you've kind of, she seems mm-hmm. right in the middle where, She's obviously must be getting contacted by lots and lots of constituents in her area. Peter, she has Peterhead and Fraserburgh, two major fishing ports within her yeah. constituency. So it's obviously something that she'll be getting quite a bit of pressure from, from within her constituency, who are ultimately a lot of the people that will vote for her at the next election. And then also she's got, you know, party loyalty and not wanting to, I guess, to, to go against her party. So that's that's a tricky one for for some MSPs. Yeah, well, you mentioned you, you ended up there in Aberdeenshire, and that is the neck of the woods where North Sea fishing industry is um, headquartered in Aberdeen and Aberdeenshire. Justin caught up with a few people outside Parliament on this very subject just just yesterday, um, the day before we record this one, and Elspeth Macdonald, who is the chief executive of the Scottish Fishermen's Federation, was there. And we can have a listen to that chat now. The Scottish government have argued that these measures are necessary to a degree due to um, environmental concerns. Do you agree with that or are there alternatives that you think could be worked up instead? I think the Scottish government has completely failed to make the case as to why these are necessary. Their consultation document was many, many pages thick, but was extremely flimsy in terms of the justification for them. We've already got an existing programme of marine protected areas across Scotland, designating almost 40% of Scotland's seas as marine protected areas. The government's got its own programme for reviewing the effectiveness of that network. The next phase of that is due to be next year. So we should absolutely evaluate what we've got so far, review where we've got to, not simply come up with a an arbitrary figure for this very draconian approach that simply isn't supported by science or evidence. It's obviously been warned today that the, the HPMAs are only meant to cover 10% of the waters, but there's concerns that it could now cover up to 50% of our coastlines because of you know how much water the Scottish Government control and they'd perhaps need permission from Westminster to go for further than 12 nautical miles. 
could this be even more devastating than originally feared for coastal communities? I think as far as we're concerned, that's an irrelevant <laughs> argument at the moment because we still contend that they, they have not made the case for why these HPMAs are needed, let alone where they should be. So that might be a different discussion for a different day, but we believe it's not the discussion for now. They haven't made the case for these HPMAs, and therefore we shouldn't be talking about where, we should be talking about why. Do you think that this is a policy that's largely been driven by the Scottish Greens because they share power with the SNP? Do you feel that the SNP are perhaps just trying to seed some ground here and get the Greens on side? This policy came from the Butte House Agreement between the Scottish Government and the Scottish Green Party. The Scottish Government had no proposals like this before that agreement was reached. So you have to conclude, certainly I would conclude that yes, this is a political agreement and not something that is driven by an evidence or a science need. Do you think the scale of the opposition to this is shown by the fact that you know several SNP backbenchers have opposed it? You know, the scale of anger with Fergus Ewing tearing up the consultation document in the chamber. Should that be a wake-up call to the SNP? Well, I think it shows the strength that there is in opposition to these proposals from MSPs who represent coastal constituents. Um, you know, they are they are standing up for their constituents' interests, communities. The length and breadth of Scotland have said they don't support these proposals and their elected representatives, I think, are, are standing up for them. You've obviously launched a petition in regards to this or you're, you're launching a petition. What comes next after that? Well, clearly the government has to conclude its um, analysis of the consultation that they ran earlier this year. They had thousands of responses to that. So we need to see where that, um, where the government lands after that. But meantime, we'll be keeping the pressure up. We are. We will be continuing to say that we think this is a flawed policy, uh, that it should be scrapped, that we should review what, where we've already got to on marine protected areas, and that we need to um, come back to the table with a blank sheet of paper and say this is the wrong approach. We need to start again. Plenty of anger there, obviously, from the fishing community. Uh, Justin, you also spoke to a more familiar political face who has moved on from Parliament. Tavish Scott used to lead the Scottish Liberal Democrats. He was an MSP in Shetland. He now works um, for Salmon Scotland and has their interests at heart now. What was he selling you? Quite similar to Elspeth, he is very concerned about this policy and he's especially concerned that while HPMAs may cover 10% of our waters, as alluded to there, there are concerns that, you know, due to where the Scottish government kind of can control water in terms of policy, it may end up covering up to half of our coastline. So he's very worried, worried about that. He has been signalling the alarm and, yeah, he really is not keen on this policy. And again, quite similarly, his concern is that it's more being driven by the Scottish Greens and their deal with the SNP. We'd like the Scottish Government to recognise the strength of argument against a designation of our marine environment, which would simply stop business being able to operate, not just a salmon business or a fishing business, but a marine tourism business, indeed anything. And we don't see the economic justification, the scientific justification, or an, or an environmental baseline for the purposes of this designation that the government wants. It's time that they rethought the proposals, worked with local people, and uh, industry, and we can all work on something that will be much better in protecting the marine environment for the long-term future of the country. You have obviously warned today that this could end up covering up to half of our coastlines due to how much you know nautical miles the Scottish Government control in terms of water. Could this be even more devastating for coastal communities than originally feared? Well, it's certainly the case that the Scottish Government needs to clarify what their proposals actually mean uh, within 12 miles uh, of the coastline, because that's their area of responsibility. Yeah. And they haven't done that as yet.
if they impose that 10% figure on that area, it's going to have an enormous impact on every walk of rural, coastal or island life. And we simply wouldn't be able to put up with that. So I want the government to work with us and work with all our colleagues in the seafood industry, both to clarify the proposals, but to think again about the best way to achieve good marine designations, which mean something and help us all protect the marine environment for the long term. They have obviously been quite vague in this area. You know, they haven't really clarified where they're going yet. They're arguing the policy still in the early stages. Is that very frustrating for you? Because as you say, this is such a major concern and it's sort of leaving, you know, the fishing industry in limbo. They've done this the wrong way around. The government should have uh, talked to local communities, to local uh, councils, uh, and then to local industries, uh, the salmon sector, the fishing sector, the inshore fishing sector, marine tourism and others, and thought about what exactly are they trying to uh, do then use science to make the economic and scientific justification for that change, and above all, to environmentally baseline it so that we all know what we're talking about. They haven't done any of those things as yet, so I think they've got it completely the wrong way around. It's time for them to basically get off this one, start again, and work with us on what we all would agree is a noble and correct objective of improving uh, and looking after the marine environment. Do you feel that this is a policy that's being driven by the Scottish Greens? Obviously, they're sharing power with the SNP via the Butte House Agreement. Do you feel that this is more being driven by the Greens than the SNP at the moment? Well, it, it seems to business that there are an awful lot of things in the Butte House Agreement that weren't thought through before they were written into that particular document. And this is just another example of that. So it's certainly time uh, for uh, the First Minister and his government to think carefully about what they're seeking to achieve here. And I, I hope that they'll see reason in the arguments that the whole of the secret sector are making, the green tourism sector, many others, and come up with a much better proposal for forward. Plenty of anger there among the fishing community, and that one will continue until it comes back to Parliament again, and more MSPs are going to have to Pick a side, I think. But that's it for this week. Thank you to Justin Bowie, Adele Merson, producer Morvan McIntyre, and of course to you for listening. We'll be back next week, but until then, pick up a paper or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal, and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed.